Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to a Jew, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts only in the Lord. Father, I thank you for this time, Lord. I, I pray that you bring Christ forth right now. Be behind the cross and bring Christ forth to show you and to feed your flock. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in this passage, what I'm going to be doing today, I'm going to be... The hardest part about stepping into a chapter in the middle is I feel like sometimes I have to backstep, which I will. But first of all, and for, for, foremost, I want to just summarize here what Paul was dealing with. Paul was dealing with a church, so the Corinthian church, that was allowing the culture of his day to influence them. And this was strongly affecting their discernment. Worldly wisdom was mixing into their spiritual um, spirituality, and divisions of Christ's body was settling in, which we'll go into. Paul was trying to make them realize that their belief in Christ had made them aliens and strangers to the world, that God had already destroyed the wisdom of the world, and that they should look to Christ and Christ alone as the substance for those things they are seeking. So from the passage, it looks like God is pretty much antithetical to what was going on and how they, they were perceiving the, Christ, uh, the Corinthians' uh, wisdom. How they were perceiving their own Christianity. Um, it's, it's interesting because you're questioning, why, why is Paul going into wisdom? Why is, he, why is he saying this? What is the Holy Spirit right now compelling Paul to pen? And if we take a couple of back steps here, we're going to go into the beginning. We can see that this church was in need of a lot. A lot of spiritual understanding was getting thwarted because of one thing. Uncrucified soul life. They were uncrucified in their soul. And I'm going to explain this real quickly as I go through this. So, in the beginning... Chapter 1, verse 1. We see Paul here giving a standard greeting. 
a standard but necessary. It says here, just follow me along. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Suthanes. Now, Paul says a statement very clearly throughout all of the letters. He's saying this. He was called by not his will, but the will of God. And this was so important because Paul, being one of those strange disciples, when I say strange, he was known mainly as a maverick, a black sheep. Why? Because he wasn't like the twelve. He wasn't following, he didn't follow Christ the three and a half years that he lived. And he really, at times, had to defend his own apostolic position. So he starts off every letter, and you will see, by the will of God, not by his own will. And we know, if we look back in Paul's life, it was not his will in the beginning to be an apostle. We could see Paul as this steam engine going full force in one direction. It was almost like, or it was like, God just switched the button and all of a sudden that rail just turned the other way. He went from persecuting Christians to being persecuted for the faith of Christianity. And this is so important because those who were persecuting Paul at that time, those, especially the Judaizers and even the carnal Christians, were questioning Paul. And if we look back, especially in Acts, if we see the job, if we could just see the job description of his apostolic duty, one word would blare out, and that is suffering. We know that Jesus prefaced to Ananias when he told Ananias to go to Paul, I have chosen him to be a preacher to the Gentiles, but I must show what does Paul, Peter, um, Jesus say? I must show him the many things that he must suffer for my name's sake. If only those who were persecuting Paul knew the background to Paul's ministry. It had to do with a lot of suffering. It had to do with a lot of suffering. I, I love um, John's, John Fuller's message a couple weeks ago when he was preaching about treasures and jars of clay, and John brought forth this paradoxical um, uh, suffering in that the Corinthians, because they were so carnal, they were seeing Paul's suffering as something that was bad. It wasn't spiritual. There's something wrong with Paul right now. Why is he suffering? He's doing something wrong. And a lot of times, we Christians, when we're observing the situation of another Christian, when we're seeing them suffering, we often try to default in our minds, think they're doing something wrong. They're not praying hard enough. They don't have enough faith. They're doing something that's contrary to what God wants them to do. But it's so interesting. If we see Paul throughout his whole ministry, we read something very interesting in Colossians, that there is a fulfillment in suffering in the body. So interesting. Fulfillment of suffering that Christians must suffer. And that word suffering is not popular. We know that. But it's so interesting, too, even our Lord Jesus, although he was perfect, we know in Luke chapter 2, as a, as a 12-year-old, we get that phrase that he had, he had grown in stature and in knowledge, that there was a growth as not the Son of God, but the Son of Man, that there was a, a, a growth in Christ as a, son of, as a Son of Man. And in Hebrews, three times it says, he was made perfect through suffering. So we go back and we see Paul's apostolic 
um, duties, suffering was the main thing. And I often think his, his critics, if they only knew, they would probably say, okay, Paul, you know what? You could have that part of the, um, the apostleship because I'm not going to want that. And we often don't. So we see here a will, the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, a sent one. We know that. An apostle for Jesus, one who was sent. Jesus sent them. And we know that the road in Damascus was a moment where Paul's life changed. Now, verse 4 through verse 9, we give now the standard thanksgiving. And I want you guys to take special attention to this because this pretty much sets the mood, I believe, of the Corinthian church, which was a special kind of church, right? In verse 4, I think there's a clue to the spiritual state of the Corinthians. It says that Paul is thanking them for something, but not really thanking them, thanking God. Listen to this. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. Interesting. It's not necessarily what Paul was saying, but what Paul was not saying. Paul couldn't thank them for their faith. Paul couldn't say, I thank you for your fellowship. Like he said to the Philippians. He said, I thank God, I thank my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you by Christ Jesus. Why was he saying this? Why grace? Because grace was what they needed. And Paul, as a father, knew this. I'm going to let you know, going through and just giving a scope of the Corinthians, this was a messy church. There was a lot of spiritual mire going on. And if I believe that if this church was given to another spiritual leader, if they weren't as spiritual as Paul, they would say, you know what? Forget this. I'm going to hang out with the Thessalonians because they're a lot more mature. They're a lot easier to deal with. You guys, uh, you're doing things that not even the Gentiles are, are doing right now. And you're making Christianity look really, really poorly. But what does he say here? He, he's, thanking, he's thanking God for the grace. Why? Because every time the Corinthians are stumbling here, there was the hand of God's grace that was lifting them up. That was keeping them to go forward. And this, interestingly, if we read further, this was a church. Prosperous by monetary means, and gifted church, spiritually. This is deceiving. Why? Because the natural mind would look at this church. They're gifted. they got the spirit. Tongues. Probably healings. And they're a church that's pretty wealthy. They're doing pretty good for themselves. They're a live church. But unfortunately, they were not at all. They were actually contrary to being spiritually alive. They were immature. But why? Why, why the gifts? Why would God give the gifts? Interestingly, that God gives the gifts based on grace, unearned, unmerited. So at times, Christians, we can say, well, God is using me strongly. 
and we can get puffed up at times, and our old man could say, well, you're, you're reading your Bible every day, so that's great. You're praying more, you're spiritually, you're, you're growing in stature, so you're doing just fine. Keep going. But there is a deception in that in many ways, because we know that it reigns among the just and the unjust. And God's provision, it, he's not a respecter of persons. And we know that. So with the Corinthians, it seemed paradoxical in why they were given all these blessings when we see the inside scoop of their mess. And we're seeing their mess. But Paul is saying grace. And grace is the word that's interwoven through this whole, pretty much these two books, these two uh, letters. And he holds to that truth. Now, in, in verse 10, this is where Paul pretty much rolls up his sleeves and he starts pointing to what is going wrong. In verse 10, follow with me, it says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Cleo, Cleo's people, that there is quarreling among you. My brethren, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Is Paul crucified for you? Division. Interestingly, this is the first admonishment. And can I be so bold to say right now that I believe by reading this, division might be the first clue to carnality in a Christian? Yeah, you meet, meeting many Christians, having that conversation, hearing the testimony, hearing about the, the regenerated spirit that's in someone. You know, you get a couple days where, you know, you're, you're basking in the Lord, and all of a sudden you get into um, the Bible, and doctrine comes in. <laughs> and that's fun. Especially eschatology. Um, okay. Division. This is where we have to see spiritually. There is a spiritual divide, but there's also a carnal one. What they were doing in, in Corinth, all right, they were dividing wrongly. All right. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a non-denominationist. You know, we see these titles all around our globe, Christianity. And the funny thing is, is that I don't even know if, if these titles, when I mean, we know these titles won't exist in heaven. I mean, this is ridiculous, but we have them here. Interesting. I, I love talking with um, Pastor Eric, and he's given me a whole scope of, and he's really given me perspective of the history, and I really have, you know, a, a deeper inside scoop of how these divisions happen, especially with the Armenians and the Calvinists and all that stuff. And I'm seeing, we're seeing these, these pendulums swinging, you know. But I want to say that divisions regarding Scripture 
There's a healthy kind, we know that. There are certain things that we cannot um, tolerate, compromise on. The main essentials, and I, and I enjoy Pastor Eric on this because, uh, and even this church because, you know, we know we have, you know, differing opinions on certain things, and I love how, um, how we keep the, the main thing the main thing, Amen. Christ being the main thing. Then those external things, we have grace. I think that was his words, and, 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 I, and I appreciate that. But right now, we're seeing something that's grieving the Lord. These divisions, dividing Christ's body, this is what Paul is saying. How can Christ's body be divided? And not to beat up the Corinthians, this, this didn't go on here. And in the letter to Galatians, Paul confronted Peter, who was struggling with the Jews and the Gentiles and separating the supper. <laughs> The, communi- the community supper, and Paul goes right to him. This was a struggle back then, and is a struggle now. We do the same thing today, of course, with doctrines, and we need to be very careful. We don't break bread with a Jehovah Witness, of course, but we don't put walls up our fellow Christian, Christians, um, brothers and sisters, and this is grieving God. And why? Because if we think, if we understand the full plan of God, um, what he's doing right now in this time of the church, I want everyone, if they, uh, they can, go to Ephesians 4.13. Ephesians 4.13. And we're going to see here, if I can, in my perspective, if I can sum up the climax, the conclusion, the, 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 the actual place that we're actually heading to, towards as a church, spiritually speaking, I think this verse here sums it up nicely. Paul's talking about the gifts and what they're for, for the body of Christ. And those gifts will keep on going, verse 13, until that conditional call, clause is right there. And what does he say here? Read with me. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, important, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. In that passage here, certain words just come out. First, unity. Very important. All right? Yes, there are things that we can disagree on, because we don't have the full picture here, but there has to be some kind of unity that's binding us, and that's Christ. Second, maturity. The vision right now is a lack of maturity. Okay, we see that when you're putting up those walls, it's a lack of maturity. And then we have here now, which I really enjoy, the knowledge. The knowledge is something that's really important and we're going to go into more today because this knowledge is beyond a earthly knowledge. The Greek word is epinosis. This is a full knowledge. This is a knowledge that's beyond worldly knowledge. And this is a knowledge that Paul is trying to bring forth to the Corinthian church. Because right now, as we look, they are babes seen carnally. They are nearsighted. If you want to equate the Corinthians to a people group in the Old Testament, I believe you can equate them 
to the first generation of Israelites that were coming out of, out of Egypt, crossed over the Red Sea, covered under the blood, out of Egypt. But unfortunately, Egypt was not out of them. They, are, they were and uh, people who were definitely allured by the world because the world was right in front of them. Out their window was a culture, a Grecian culture, that coveted worldly wisdom philosophical debates. The temple Aphrodite was right there, luring them in their sexual pleasures. Unfortunately, they did not keep that beyond the, thresh, the threshing floor of their doors, the threshold of their doors. They invited that in. And Paul, seeing it in the first step to their carnality, he's showing it there. Is, you're setting up divisions. This is a problem. And Paul saying, this cannot be. This is grieving the Lord severely. Now, skipping over to verse 13, and I do believe this is the step that Paul's trying to bring them to the right direction. So he's seeing their fault, now he's trying to correct them, but he corrects them by his example. He says here, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquence. Very, very interesting. He used the word eloquence. Why? Because the Greeks thrived on that. Eloquent wisdom, lest the cross, listen guys, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What, is, what does God say to Paul? My power is perfected in your weakness, Paul. It's weakness that the Corinthians have to understand and know. Those, those treasures in jars of clay, interesting. God uses a, a fragile container to house something that's so precious. That, that doesn't seem right. You would think, you know, a treasure, you want it in something that is bulletproof. We put our treasures, we don't put them in jars of clay, we put them in safes where we lock and key, double, triple, bolt them. Here, God's putting his treasure, his son, we can equate it to in us, jars of clay. Think about the, um, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. She uses an alabaster ointment, an alabaster jar. How does she get a hold of the oil? What does she have to do to the alabaster? She has to break it. The jars of clay, the vessels, that we right now are for us to bring forth Christ these vessels need to be broken and this is of course paradoxical to the carnal mind because in our carnality in our soul it's the preserving of life that we want, we preserve it but going back, and what does Jesus say in Matthew 16? Those who love their life will lose it. Right? And those who lose their life for my sake will gain it. Right? That word life is a soul life. 
and this is what needs to break. This is what the Corinthians have to understand. And the thing is, with God's power coming forth, it cannot be by worldly wisdom. Paul was not going to compete with those philosophers that were out on the street trying to bring forth the best eloquence he can to compete for the gospel. God didn't need that, and he still doesn't. And this is even sobering for me right now. You know, it's pacing back and forth for a couple of days, saying, I don't know how Eric does this every week. You know, my stomach's in knots. I'm, you know, I'm not eloquent, but this is sobering. You know, I'm trying to bring forth God's word. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher by trade. And this is my, but you know what? If I mess up on the liberal subjects of math, science, social studies, I think there's more grace than me messing up in God's word. So I tell pastor that you have a very daunting task. I love Paul Washer's um, opinion on preaching. He says this, I hate preaching. I hate it. And why? Because it's such a taunting task. This is such a, understand this, at the Bema seat, right now, I am going to be explaining myself if this was for me or if this was for the Lord. Now, you can't see that. Only the Lord can. And so, Right now, perhaps, you're probably you know, making your opinions, whether it's for Christ or for myself, but you won't truly know. You won't truly know. Our, 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 our works here will not, will not see its fruition. It's not tested yet until we're at the beam of sea, until the fire refines all of our work. And it's a sobering task. It's a sobering task to be a preacher. I love um, Spurgeon's example here. You know, Spurgeon, a man who is eloquent by nature, a man who was the laity's pastor, they called him, I believe, um, who really related to the common man. He, he recalls, and I, did, I, did have had, I have mentioned this story before, but he said as he was walking in the street one day, he hears a drunkard calling out his name, and he says, Spurgeon! Hey, Spurgeon! I'm one of your converts! And Spurgeon turns around, he looks at him, and he says, you must be one of mine, because you're sure not Christ. And if, if, if we think about that truly, this, is, this, this transformation of new life does not come from power of man. It comes from the Spirit's power. And even Spurgeon knew that. Of all of his eloquence and all of, all of what he could bring forth as a man, it really would not get the job done. It's the Spirit coming forth. And in His humility, the Spirit does come forth. Okay. With all that said, alright, we're going to go into verses 18 to 25. Hopefully, uh, Gary, help me out with time here because I don't have my... plenty of time. That's a good thing. Alright. All right. So... Verses 18 to 25 here, we see here that Paul does set a division. He sets a spiritual divide here. And it all has to do with the cross. Read with me one more time. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the sermon of discerning I will thwart. Paul is setting up a divide. 
And in that divide, the middle is the cross. And so what Paul's doing here is there is a divide in God's economy. There are those who are saved and those who are lost. That's the divide. And that's how we should see it. When we see the harvest, when we look out in our, jo- um, uh, in our own environment, you know, it's very easy to compartmentalize people. But spiritually speaking, when we get down to the nitty-gritty and knowing a person, it's only two categories they fit in. They're lost or saved. And from that, we, we act. So it says here, first, 2 Corinthians 4, you don't turn there, but 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, it says here, the gospel is hidden to those who are lost, whom the God of this world has blinded. Try to talk to a blinded man about color. It's a challenging thing. Now try to talk to a blinded spiritual man about Christ. You can give a blind man a telescope. He's still going to see what he can. He's he's not going to be able to see what he can't see. This is something that we have to understand, too, because sometimes we feel all I have to do is say the right words, bring the right approach, have the right tactic to reach this believer. But if a person is blind, a person is blind. And the only way they're going to have sight is if God takes away the scales from their eyes and illuminates them with Christ. Paul says, it pleased God to reveal his son in me. As a true convert, we should all have that sort of road to Damascus moment where we can see clearly between darkness and light. Once I was blind, now I see. And Paul's making this divide. He's saying, this is the divide that you have to have, Corinthians. That the wisdom of this world... Is there's no discernment in there. And that in Isaiah, he is now crushing the wisdom of this world. If we look, now we're seeing this in real time. We're seeing the wisdom of this world, the folly that's going on. I think we're beyond the post-truth. We're beyond bizarro land, I believe. It's sad. It really is. We can poke fun about it all we want. But now truth basically is based on how one feels. What is relative to you? I'm not going to go into all of it. The issues, we, you know it as Christians, you see it every day and what's going on in our world. But truth, truth is lost. So I can honestly say that, you know what, God destroyed truth. So now we're, we're out in the streets now and we're asking these questions that Paul's saying here rhetorically. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Truth is, is, is abandoned right now. Since God deemed the wisdom of this world null and void, obsolete, who is wise, who is the scribe, who is the debater? This is now, like I said, like my cell phone. If it goes obsolete, there's there's nothing I can do. I I can put a nice, pretty picture on it. I can try to update it, whatever that means. It's still not going to work. 
And so is the Christian who is getting their wisdom from, from the world. But interestingly, and this is where it opens up here, and this is where I want to take it. I actually want to take it to a little rabbit trail, if you don't mind me, for a second, okay? Verse 21. Just follow with me for a sec. For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 21, I see it as a pathway. This is amplified for you note takers. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians 6 through 16. I just want to briefly bullet some points here because Paul is saying there is a wisdom. And I'm going to briefly just show it to you because this is, this is for the mature. So I want you to understand too is that he's, he's dumbing down spirituality for Christians. Not to, not, to, not to be harsh on the Corinthians. But they were not ready for certain um, with truths, wisdom. He could not expound what he expounded in Colossians. He couldn't expound what he expounded in Ephesians, a church that was ready. He had actually done it down a little bit. And he does it a little bit here. That there is a wisdom beyond the wisdom that you, you see here, beyond what's played out in the marketplaces. So I'm just going to say here, it's a, it's a wisdom for the mature in verse 6. It says here in verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of the age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret, verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is a wisdom before our time. And this is a hidden wisdom. Interestingly, when, when, when Jesus was giving was preaching, he started, I think it's, it's explained perfectly in Matthew, he started preaching in parables in Matthew. And this is right after they were calling him a blasphemer. He started all of a sudden changing his preaching from direct preaching, telling them about the kingdom of God, to now turning the kingdom of God into earthly stories. We know a parable. Earthly stories with heavenly meanings, two purposes for a parable. To reveal a matter for those hearts that are willing and open, and to conceal a matter for those hearts that are close to it. So this is a wisdom that God is saying here, that it's it's hidden for the for the for the worldly wise. You, you can't you can't get to it by I'm going to narrow it down. Five senses, our soul life, five senses, our will, our emotions, our feelings. This is a wisdom beyond that. And this is what Paul is trying to implore with the Corinthians. He's trying to bring them into, he's trying to lift them up from an earthly perspective to a spiritual one. And he does it right here. And I love, like I said, I have gleaned on these verses. I really enjoy them. And I think that, you know, I, I, I encourage, just spend some time. But we're just going to bullet them right here. It says, it's a wisdom hidden from earthly minds. Okay. In verse, um, if we go to verse 9, it says, it, it goes, it hits right to the five senses. It says here, no eye has seen, right? No ear has heard, no heart of man imagined. That hits, that hits the soul. 
faith. Think about the definition of faith in Hebrews 11. The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Recite. It's contradictory to the senses. Verse 10 of this of this uh, this chapter. It says here, these things God had revealed to us through the Spirit. This is only revealed through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches the, um, everything, even the depths of God. I, I, I want to just bring you towards Peter. Matthew 16, very quick. I love this chapter. Why? Because it, re it reveals a lot with this verse I just said. God has revealed them. When Christ was asking, when Jesus Christ was asking them, who do people say that I am? And then they give him to John the Baptist, or the prophet. And then Christ finally goes to the disciples, so who do you say that I am? And Peter. Of course, Peter. You learn a lot from Peter in this, in this chapter. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Listen, how does Jesus respond to him? He doesn't say, oh, it's about time, Peter. You've been hanging out with me for so long. You're finally putting two and two together and you're making four. Excellent. You're putting, you're putting, you're, you're rationalizing. No, he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't even give him his, uh, he doesn't even give him credit for his intellect. Or even his own spirituality. What does he say? He says that flesh and blood Peter did not reveal this to you, but my father up in heaven. There was a connection at that moment between Peter, his spirit, and God. And he put it together. And Peter at that moment had a higher level of wisdom. It was spiritual wisdom. Even before the spirit was poured out, God let him see it. And this is, a, this is a wisdom that God is imploring us as Christians to see and strive for. But it takes the soul death in this case here. I'm not going to go that in there today. I know I, I, can, I can go crazy on it. I'm not going to do that. But I will go through this portion and see how far we can go. In verse 11, Paul relates this connection of God and man's spirit With humans, with the human connection, it says here. Let me see here. Hold on for a sec, guys. Um, okay, verse eleven. For and, and this is this is interesting. Verse eleven. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? Paul does something very interesting. He now, because this is a hard saying, he makes it relatable. How do you know? How do you how do you know yourself? Because the spirit that's within you, there's a connection between you. Same. It's the same thing between the connection of our human spirit with God's spirit. There's a connection. And discernment now, discernment is what it brings forth. And this is something that's so important that I'm going to go into just a little bit here. Discernment. The natural man, despite his regenerative spirit, despite him being born again, the natural man is undiscerning. The things of God are foolishness, even the deeper things to the natural man, and we know that. This is hard. 
Turn to James for me for a second. James 3, 13 through 18. I'm going to read something real quick about natural wisdom. Hopefully it doesn't offend anyone. Okay. I'm going to just... Okay, here we go. James, James, James 3.13. I want you to hear James. Now, James, book of wisdom in the New Testament. He goes over something. He, he compares the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And I want you to understand even just the, the sequence and how he, he, he does this. It says here, Who is the wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. And he goes in here into verse 15. Listen, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, one, and spiritual, two, and secondly, it's demonic. Interesting. Coming back to Peter, that same chapter, same chapter, this is the, the rise and fall of Peter in chapter Matthew 16. What happens to Peter? He's on his high horse until Christ says, I have to be, I, I need to suffer many things and be crucified. And uh, this is the sincerity of Peter's heart. He rebukes the Lord. He rebukes the Lord. And I mean, we, we, we could see it as ridiculous because we know the cross and what it meant, but Peter, as in sincerity and having his expectation of the Messiah, he was rebuking the Lord. He says, Cursed be, that will not happen to you. What's interesting is Peter, um, Jesus' response to Peter on how he addresses him. This is important. He doesn't go and turn and say, get behind me, Peter. He tells him, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because at that moment, Satan was a mouthpiece for Peter. Peter wasn't sinning. Peter was in, he was speaking out of his soul. He was speaking out of what he understood in the situation unspiritual, undiscerning. The carnal Christian can be a mouthpiece for Satan. We can be a mouthpiece for Satan. The book of Job is a very interesting book. We hear the discourse between the three friends. But before we get to the discourse, we see in the first two chapters of, this, of the sons of God coming to, to God in a courtroom scene. And we have here the Satan coming and approaching God and appealing for Job. And the Satan says, after God says, you're, you're considering my, my servant Job. And Satan says, you know, he's a faithful servant, but start taking away things. He's going to curse you to your face. We see this in two, chap in two chapters. What we don't see is that Satan, Satan doesn't end in chapter 2. He 
he continues, but in a very subtle manner, through his three friends. What is tricky about that is, and I struggled with the book of Job until I understood that they were the three friends, if you go in and you, and you look at their doctrine, their doctrine is sound. There's nothing wrong with their doctrine at all, actually. It's very good doctrine. The triumphing of the wicked is short. The joy of the hypocrite, but a moment. Yeah, Zophar, that, that's good doctrine. So why in chapter 38 do we see God coming in as a whirlwind? Interesting. The same tool that, that was used to kill the sons and the daughters of Job. And God's saying, gird up your loins. And he goes and he points and says here, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Words without knowledge is dangerous. And a carnal Christian who is not dividing the word of God rightly is dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And it's a sobering thing. That's why in Isaiah 66, 2, what does God say? He says, to the poor and contrite of spirit, those who tremble at my word. It's a sobering thing. It's a sobering thing with God. And I, I believe this. can't prove this, but I believe this. That Satan has done more damage to professed Christians than non-believers. He's done more damage in this world. He's shown himself very cunning. All right? He knows scripture. He can use it. The question is now. Is it used rightly? Is it used with discernment? And this is what um, Paul is bringing forth here with the wisdom of God. There's a discernment there that needs to happen, Corinthians. And if you don't have it, you are going to be a mouthpiece for Satan. And if we read this, this, this letter all the way through, carnality, uncrucified soul life, at first it might not present itself as sin, it eventually will. And we know if we keep going into this letter in chapter 5, the divisions, the judgment, we read in chapter 5 that all of a sudden fornication has entered their camp and a man is sleeping with his father's wife. This is the result of uncrucified soul life. Now this begs the question, what type of Christian does Satan have no real estate in? Right? The answer is simple. A crucified one. One who is not tethered to the earth and is fully obedient to the Father and accepts his will over his own, no matter the cost. Does one man come in mind? I love Jesus' uh, saying here in John 14, 30, when he is flint to Jerusalem. He's heading for the cross. He's heading, and he is walking 
obedient to the Father's will. He says something very interesting. He says, I will no longer talk with you, for the ruler of this world has come. He has no claim on me. How many of us can say that Satan has no claim on us? The key? The cross. Our flesh is the nexus. It's the clutching power of Satan. Where flesh is, he has the right to, he has the right to, to claim. Where we are acting carnal, Satan has the right to go to God and says, that's my domain. And God says, go sift. And he will sift. And he will continue to sift. And God, working all things for good to those who love the Lord, calling according to his purpose. But what is he doing? He is now manifesting Christ in us. This, 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 sculptor, this uh, sculptor of Satan that God is using, when he is sculpting a carnal Christian, he's bringing forth Christ. It's hurting. It's... It's painful. It's a painful process. Peter had to learn this. We know that. If we see, if we look at the Gospels and, and, and we, uh, we see, especially Mark's Gospel, Peter was very, very adamant about not, not denying the Lord. Not I, Lord, not I. Right? But eventually he did, and what he, he wept. He had to go out. He had to. He had to come to an end of himself. And this is where... Now, as we come to an end of ourself, as we're broken and contrite, now God's saying, that's the man I can use. There's no more of him in him. We know that Paul, when we read, especially Philippians, I press towards the prize, the upward calling of Christ. Like, Paul's dead. He says, it's not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Paul is obsolete. He knows the old man. He's taking Romans 6 and saying, I have died already. Funny thing. Try to, um, try to insult the dead man. You can't, right? As Christians, we get insulted a lot. Right? Can't insult the dead man. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> All right, I'm done. All right. Let's go to verse 26 to 31, back to the chapter that I should stay on. Right? And I skipped, and I'm sorry. All right. All right. 26 to 31. It's a summary here. It says, throughout the whole Bible, we can see that God's ways are not our ways, all right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. We do not have to look far to see that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. Interestingly, right? Out of barrenness, fertility. In creation, Abraham and Sarah, as they disinherit the nations and says, you know what? All nations, you can be under the sons of God. I'm going to, I'm going to lean on the ESV version on this one. All nations, forget it. I'm going to pick a withered branch and make a great nation out of it. Foolishness. It's foolishness. Not many mighty, not many noble. 
Moses, God fashioning a liberator from a stuttering vagabond. And I'm sure you guys had a, a joyous time watching that vagabond finally become the man, the liberator that God destined him to be. As he appealed to God and saying, I can't do that, I stutter. I'm not qualified. And God's saying, who made the mouth, Abraham? I mean, I'm sorry, who made the mouth, Moses? Who made the mouth, right? Gideon, I love Gideon's story, right? We're seeing this, God's, God using the debased things. The, Gideon, a, 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 a man who is threshing wheat, hiding from the Midianites. An angel of the Lord goes him, Hello, man of valor. Man of valor, what are you seeing? Something beyond the natural eye can see. Something beyond what Gideon could see. He brings forth a mighty general from a timid man hiding. And not only that, he brings forth an army in a ridiculous fashion. Picking out an unrefined group, not just an unrefined group, a measly 300 and out of an outnumbering Midian army. And not only that, but to make things worse, the standard weaponry, it's not standard at all. A cistern? A torch? A horn? God, what are you doing? David, pastor, covered this nicely. And Samuel having to be reminded when he's, when he's going through Jesse's sons that God is not seeing the man the outward sense. He's seeing the inward. And this is, this is sight here. This is for the mature. The twelve disciples. Fishermen. Fishermen, he uses. Doesn't go to the, the Harvard of, its, of their day, to the synagogue, to Gamaliel. Picking the best of the best. Christ uses the weak and the humble to turn the world upside down. Or maybe I should say right side up. The list goes on. Yet today we try to present God with our best. This is what we do. I'm just summarizing this. I'm not going to go through it. We're, we're still presenting God with our best. Even Christians, we try. We, you know, we're, we're trying to work, like I said, the obsolete man. We're trying to work it out. We're trying to do our best. We're trying to you know, cultivate our intellect and bring forth our qualifications whether that be through education, experience, talent. Bring forth your talent to the Lord. What is he going to do? You know, I'm going to say this right now. Just because, you know, just, just because I have a background in education does not make me a teacher. In Bible. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not. You know, that doesn't make me a Bible teacher. If God, if God wants me to do that, it's going to be poured by his spirit. And it's not going to be by me. And us bringing forth our worldly talents is deceiving as well. Because through those worldly talents, there's much boasting. I earned it. I did all my education. I did all of my, uh, you know, all my field study. I can do this. And I can just apply this to Christianity. Wrong. Wrong. It's wrong. We will even bring forth our own righteousness, which is scary. And we have to be careful. 
And he tells us back that he can't use that. God says, I can't use that. There's too much of the self there for me to truly get the glory. And this is the point of these last few verses. It's Christ getting the glory. And we have to be careful. We'll be concluding soon. If our salvation, and listen, if our salvation was truly the work of the Spirit, then how can our living the Christian life, which is the manifestation of Christ in us, the hope of glory, be of anything less? Our new Christian life was not because of us. And we understand that. It wasn't Paul, wasn't the apostle of Paul because of him. He's telling the Christians this, and he's telling the Corinthians this, and he's saying this, your Christianity, your, your faith in the Lord, your walk in the Spirit is not going to be because of you. Because your redemption, your sanctification, we're going to go into this, it's not because of you either. So how can we, how can we continue something that we haven't even started and how many Christians are bringing that forth? God saved me, so I'm going to roll up my sleeves and show them how much I love them. We try to do that. I'm quoting uh, Adrian Thomas there. We are to appropriate his life. There's too much self there. Too much. If our salvation was truly the work of the Spirit, then how can our living the Christian life, and I just said, I'm sorry, I'm repeating. And, uh, so going forward here, we know that man's best is religion. It is religion. And we have to be very careful. And that follows the footsteps of Cain. If we were to look back and say what Cain did, Cain presented his best. But he didn't present what God needed. He needed a sacrifice. Abel presented that perfect sacrifice. So when we're giving God our best, we're presenting him purely with religion. Religious works, and that's all we're doing. And we're following in Cain's footsteps. Almost finished here. God is not interested in man's best. He is only interested in, this is going, this is the sum of it all, his son, Christ. That's all he's interested in. That's all he's, he's in need. And whoever has the son has the father. And whoever has not the son has not the father. It is in Jesus Christ that God is well-pleased. So when God looks at you and he's well pleased, he's not seeing you, he's seeing his son in you. And we have to understand that. Not with us. So we are to appropriate his life. And we have to follow the words of Paul, not, not I, but Christ. Lastly, In the end of this small crisis that we see in chapter 1, Paul's remedy through this crisis, and this is important, is a deeper revelation and knowledge of Christ. It is. Think about it. The remedy to all our crises, that's even a word, is a fuller knowledge of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ, Paul says in Ephesians. It's an unsearchable riches. It, it doesn't stop. It keeps going. And it's there for us. It's there for us when we need it. John, very quickly, the last book, the Apocalypto, 
the apocalypse, the unveiling. And what is an unveiling? Not the, not the details of what's going to happen in the end, although we can, we, we can take from that. It's the unveiling of Christ. And what does he see? He sees Christ in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He sees Christ, if we see the golden candlesticks, as a symbol of the church, which is, he's in the midst of his church. There's a bigger Christ at hand. This is the Christ that Paul is bringing forth, and this is the Christ, and this is the Christ that, that John has seen. And this is the Christ that they saw, I believe, on the Mount of Hermon during the transfiguration process. This is a bigger Christ. This is what they need. So this is what Paul gives them, very quickly. That the God, I'm sorry, that because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became unto us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He's bringing forth now. He's revealing Christ and who Christ is and who Christ can be for them. He is everything. He is their wisdom. And we talked about wisdom today. Christ is your wisdom. Very interestingly, in, in, in the Ephesians and Colossians letter, what is Paul's fervent prayer for the saints? It's simply a deeper knowledge. It's a wisdom to know Christ more. It's his, the unsearchable riches of Christ, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is a deeper understanding of Christ, and this is the remedy for this crisis. To know this Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And this is because of him, Christ, and not because of them, the Corinthians. This grace, this is grace. And grace, we know, is not forced. To receive it freely. Yet, to, to, to the receiver, it is free. And yet, to the giver, we know it cost. And why? In the end, one author writes, it says here, the Lord did something. He became poor. And what he did was voluntary. As to why he did it, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Yes, the grace that the Corinthians were given, the grace that we have today, it's that, it's that hand that's holding us up as we stumble. And it's free for us. It was very costly to the Lord. Very costly to Him. And our Christianity as we go forward, it should be a costly one. It should cost something. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, I just ask you, Lord, that whatever I said, whatever needed to be said, whatever words that came out, Lord, I thank you, Lord, that in the right spirit that it's received. Um, I thank you, Lord, that the, the wisdom that was brought forth right now, that, Lord, that you just give us understanding and more understanding of you, that this wisdom is beyond an earthly wisdom, and this is something that has to be attained. Lord, we can't do this in our own strength. It's not by our own strength that we can attain this wisdom. This is only by your power. And we ask you as you move and you continue to build the church, that you build us up 
and the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. All of So we have that discernment. So as we go into a lost and dying world, as we carry the, the death of Christ in our bodies, for those that are seeing it, that are dying, it's, it, they're perishing. But to those who are living in his life, we're bearing the testimony of Christ that we do this in your power, with your discernment, with your wisdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you.